Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here's Shahan J. Haraja and Babak Hayeri. All right. Welcome back, everybody. This is the College Football Survivors Show, brought to you by Buyout Money, where we go deep into this season's contenders for the college football playoff. I'm Bob Akhairi, and I'm joined, as always, by Shahan Jayaraja, national college football writer for CBS Sports. You can find us on X at CFB Survivor Show, where you can participate in our polls, send us feedback. We always appreciate it when you take a moment to let us know there or like, rate, and subscribe our show wherever you find it. And reviews on places like Apple and wherever you get your podcasts always help folks find us. Well, we had the final week of the regular season, and while the game was close, everyone else won. So ain't that just ducky? Um, you know, I wanted one thing I read this weekend and I do on my spare time help run the college football subreddit, um, on Reddit. I, I read a comment that I thought summarized this week and, and what it's like almost year after year. And I'm going to credit, I guess, home free one twenty two an Oklahoma fan. It ain't a championship run season. If you don't have a near death experience with your in-state rival. And I think we saw that several times this past week. But Shahan, how are you? What? How did you think this weekend went? This has been the weirdest season that I can remember because we have had so many close calls. Well, we nearly had Alabama lose to South Florida this year. We had fourth and thirty-one. We like we've had so many close calls this year, and nobody's losing. Every single one of these teams is surviving. Washington won on a game-winning walk-off field goal against Washington State. Like, I, I don't understand how it's even possible to have this many favorites win. But this, I mean, this weekend got the juices flowing. This was this was a fun weekend. Everybody looked vulnerable. Nobody looked very good. Uh, I, I will say, too, right? So, obviously, and, and we have a lot of uh, legacy Northern listeners, of course, like the game is great. The game is a fantastic. It's one of the biggest, best football games that uh, that obviously college football has, and it lived up to it in every single way. Thirty to twenty-four, obviously going Michigan's way, but like the Iron Bowl is so good. The, the Iron Bowl has a level of chaos for two high-profile teams that the game just never really has. It's all like the game is always like a very like like high pressure type football game and like the iron bowl is like you can return a missed field goal out of the end zone like you can you don't have to spy a quarterback when he has to go 31 yards on one play it's crazy i i cannot believe yeah. it somebody <laughs> did point out two of the most high profile and, and longest fourth down conversions that we've ever seen are fourth and 31, Auburn against Alabama, and fourth and 25, uh, Arkansas over Ole Miss back in 2015. Both of those teams coached by Hugh Freeze. Oh, man. I did not realize that. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. The Iron Bowl is just like pure YOLO chaos, however you want to put it. While, yeah, Michigan and Ohio State, it feels like serious people having a serious football game when they have a football game. It's just like everyone's bringing their A game. They're trying to be professionals. They go in and someone wins, someone loses. You know, especially when it's in Jordan Hare, the Iron Bowl is just like, you know, let's just let's put all reason aside. Let's play with with just madness 
And and for pure entertainment, I think, yeah, a neutral, a neutral fan who isn't necessarily as into the X's and O's would just love that more. Uh, and and I, I agree with that. I love both. I love all tastes and all varieties of college football, but I, I think that's a great observation. I 100% <laughs> agree with you there. Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, and it's, it's interesting, too, because... Yeah. By the way, I just want to say it's so funny that fourth down call. I I still I still can't get over the decision to put a spy on on Jalen Milrow, like he was going to scramble for thirty one yards on fourth down. I mean, it reminds me, you know, it, like they should have running jokes. Like they should have that spy is still out there today waiting for Jalen Milrow to break off that attempted run. I'm. It reminds me of. Um, well, actually, one of the better jokes I read about this is like the city of Tuscaloosa should have an honorary day of the week. You know, they should change just their calendar to have an April 30, an April 31st, to have a 431 um, just for this next year. I don't know. Like, just skip May 1st, like actually add that 31st day. So 431 can be a Tuscaloosa holiday. I think they should absolutely do that because that would totally, I think, fit into that kind of that kind of hilarious sort of not pettiness wackiness that you see in that sort of a rivalry game but my goodness i mean and it, and it's so interesting too with these kinds of of close wins cuz obviously washington squeaked by as well um you know it's going to be interesting to see how the playoff committee will eventually kind of look at these um and kind of compare them cuz what we see on the field i mean arguably florida state also i mean they had a rally from behind how they're going to have to weigh all of these things um, and are they going to look at the team that in the past or are we going to look at the team that's going to be on the field? There's going to be a lot of those questions um, for the committee, especially as we see their rankings on Tuesday night. No, it's a great question. And, you know, the other piece, too, obviously, uh, Florida State playing in their first game without their starting quarterback, Jordan Travis, didn't look all that impressive against a pretty bad Florida team that, by the way, missed a bowl for the first time since 2014, but that's not part of our discussion. Uh, Tate Rodemaker, of course, into the starting lineup. Not not the greatest 12 of 25 for 134 yards. I, I am curious because if Florida State wins against Louisville, who, by the way, also lost in a, a crazy game to set off a a crazy Mark Stoops, Texas A&M adventure that didn't come to fruition. But like Florida state at 13 and 0 has to be in, right? Like, like, but I don't think anybody's going to feel very good about it. Yeah. It's a really awkward situation because if you're, if you're looking at the team, that's going to be on the field in the playoff, if they're looking fresh, it's hard to look at this program and say, Oh yeah, I could totally. I don't know who they would be favored against in the top eight right now. It would be it would be difficult for me to find that team. And I mean, again, you know, I'm not you know <laughs> that Florida State Florida game. Florida sabotaged itself several times. I mean, I've heard it called the spit and quit, the swamp spit, because suddenly the defensive a freshman defensive lineman gets ejected for spitting in the second quarter at a Florida State guard, and they went on a, the, the Knowles went on a 24 to three, you know, tear afterwards. So, and then they, Florida had another boneheaded play where there was like that dual targeting where two of the players took out Rodemaker and, and Rodemaker again, like it's a tough environment. It's a swamp. So I'll give him that credit, but finishing 48% of your passes, he made a, a key fourth down conversion. So, and at one point it looked like he was knocked out of the game. So, I mean, it was it, it, luckily, thankfully he was okay. He only missed a little bit of it, but um, their running game was able to keep them in it. Trey Benson ran for three touchdowns. He had 95 yards and 19 carries. He had a 26 yarder in the third down with less than three minutes to play that kept them in the game and kept that helped seal that victory. But at the same time, 18 consecutive wins, you have to acknowledge that 
if we're because I mean we're talking about why even Georgia was having its weakest weeks of this season. Everyone was like, well, yeah, but Georgia, you know, you can't deny the fact that they're on this this crazy run, the the, the best in the SEC so far. But the defense for Florida weathered a storm. They were able to they were able to, to keep the keep them in the game. The, it helped that again. The Gators had that backup quarterback, Max Brown, and he wasn't that great. So once again, I mean, they had a game ceiling interception um, because you have a backup quarterback who is struggling against a solid defense. So it's so hard. It's so hard to read this team. I mean, and all all credit to Norvell and his his staff because they kept the Knowles focused. They kept them in the game and they were able to rally. And that I think that's the part that I guess I'm most impressed by. They were able to rally and win when things started to look pretty bad, especially there were so many things they could have, you know, the team could have internalized. To, to let that game get out from under them, but they managed to do it. But as you said, it's, it's Florida. I can't tell what to make of this team. I mean, I think we'll see if Napier is even the head coach by the end of next season. Um, but, uh, but again, we're not really in, this isn't the floor. We're not talking Florida because they're obviously not a playoff contender, but that does weigh into where would you put Florida state? Who would you, who would you ever favor them against? And I can't wait to see where they get weighed and, and, with, even though Washington had a close win, I can't see Florida State even challenging them for that that third spot. No, no, definitely not. I do think uh, that we are bearing the lead a little bit. It's time to vote out a team, and we are going to go straight to the polls. We put all of our one-loss teams in our poll, Alabama, Oregon, Texas, and the lucky winner, Ohio State, with 44% of the vote is out of the college football playoff conversation. And I think we have to talk about the game. Obviously, yes. a very competitive game. 30-24 to 24 win for Michigan. A third straight. The last time that Michigan won three straight was when they won a national championship. By the way, their only national championship since the Korean War. That's not what you want to see if you're Ohio State. Uh Ryan Day obviously is now 56 and 7 as a head coach with three of those losses coming against Michigan. His only win against Michigan came back in 2019 because they didn't play the game in 2020. That is not what you want to see if you're Ohio State. He's also now lost to Jim Harbaugh and Sharon Moore. But the uh, <laughs> and, and the thing is like, you know, credit to Michigan. There it's Last week was their thousandth victory. I should say the week before against Maryland, but their one thousand and one victory was one for the ages. And this time, Michigan didn't really steal signals; they just stole Ohio State's thunder. Because we, both of us, and I know I was completely bullish on the fact that I thought uh, Trayvon Henderson was going to help, was going to be a key to the game. He was going to help open it up and watch what happens. You know, it'll give Kyle McCord an opportunity to just get the game going, and we'll see if. JJ McCarthy is shaky and man, I can't, I cannot check off how many mistakes I made, how many assumptions I made. Um, <laughs> I honestly, you know, on a lighter note, I thought, you know, Harbaugh should have been on standby to be para-dropped into the big house after the win, just kind of fall into that big crowd that, that appeared on the field in the big house. But I mean, how much of it, and it's funny watching that game, how much of it was, was Ryan Day's conservative play calling how many of it were the, the key interceptions by Kyle McCord? The only turnovers in the game, but, you know, the turnover battle is key in a game like this. And I know last week I mentioned Ohio State's special teams were a weak point and they weren't able to deliver on a field goal. But of course, you could say that was a long field goal. And part of the reason they were put in that position in the, the second quarter was because of Ryan Day's conservative play calling. So I'm trying to figure out if Ohio State 
was outbullied or outmanaged by Michigan in that game. There's so many questions I have to try and analyze it, but ultimately, at least just taking a quick, you know, uh, going back to the whole reason why they shouldn't necessarily be a playoff contender right now. With everyone else winning out, they need, they're now in the Louisville position. They need mad chaos for any hope to get into this playoff. And with the way teams are playing, the odds of that seem awfully low. And we'll get, we're going to dive deeper into these conference uh, title games a little bit later. But um, I think, again, it was interesting to watch. Michigan last year was more on big plays. This year it was more methodical. I think Michigan really stepped up. And I just, one last point I want to make um, JJ McCarthy. I was concerned about his play. He had a terrible game against Maryland, but I was listening to sort of what people were observing of him before, you know, the game this year. And I, it, it made sense. He's comfortable against Ohio state. He went into the shoe last year and beat them this year. He's healthier. He's in the, he's in the big house. It's a very friendly audience. I mean, I was, it was striking to see how few Ohio state fans could get tickets to that game. And he just went out there and did what needed to be done, did what was asked for him. And that was a thought I had. We were talking about the game last week. Will we have a player who sees the game and steps up? That's like their moment to shine. And J.J. McCarthy, I'm not going to say it was like a Heisman winning performance, but he did what was needed. And that's what that got helped Michigan win this game. Absolutely. You know, I, I think that what's frustrating for Ohio State is it, I mean, in football, we so often get caught in these traps of talking about it in the dumbest ways, right? We're just like, well, this team wanted it more. This team was tougher. This team, but like Ryan Day coaches scared. Ryan Day coaches scared against Michigan. You saw it, like you mentioned, at the end of the first half, they have fourth and two at the middle of the field. They have a 52-yard field goal that they that they're setting up which is a really long field goal, even in the NFL. That's not a a kick that's automatic by any means. And they had 39 full seconds left on the clock when they decided to let the clock run down and take a timeout and kick a long field goal that they missed. That that is cowardice. That is straight up cowardice. There's no way around that. Uh, One of the biggest keys, especially in the first half of the game, Ohio State, I believe, was outgaining Michigan by about 80 yards in the first half. But Michigan had three fourth down conversions. Ohio State didn't even attempt one. That's cowardice. Michigan is playing to win the game. Ohio State is playing to not lose the game. Uh, You saw, I I think that there were some clips circling from before the game where Kyle McCord was like, don't make mistakes, don't make mistakes to, to like Ohio State's players, that that was like their focus heading into the game. He threw an interception early and he immediately seemed to realize I made a mistake and played scared after that. And you can't play like that in this kind of game. You know, we you have to go out there and and try to be the better team. You know, in Michigan. One one other point that I that I saw somebody make was Ohio State in so many ways played to win last year's version of this game. Michigan played to to play a step ahead to to try to not just uh, replicate last year but to be one step ahead of everybody else. You know, whether it was obviously, like I said, you know, the going for it on fourth down, whether it was uh, the, 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 uh, the running back pass, right? Like the, the Donovan Edwards pass that went for a big game. That was a huge play in the game. So they very much tried to continue to think ahead. Ryan day and his staff tried to look behind and it ultimately cost them. And, and, you know, we, we don't have to spend too, too much more time on this game, but the reality is, It is so much worse for the reason that Ohio State lost the game 
to be that they were bad on offense. That That is just not acceptable when your head coach is Ryan Day. That is what you are there for. If your defense is playing well and your offense sucks, then what are you doing here? What What is the point of you being here? Because I've said it once and I'll say it a thousand times. Ohio State, to me, is the best job in the country. To me, it recruits itself. To me, you could put almost any coach in that job and win 10 games a year because of the advantages that it has versus the rest of the, the Big Ten. Now, obviously, things will change up a little bit with, with four new teams coming in, but being 56 and 7 isn't that impressive to me when you lose every game that matters. He's 1 and 6 against top five opponents. You know, you, you've got me thinking. It's like, so it's slightly better than Penn State. It's like Penn State's <laughs> big, the same story, but you can't also beat Ohio State. Um, you know, and it's interesting, too. I agree totally with the conservative play calling and I, I playing scared. But also, it's almost like they completely bought into J.J. McCarthy's just not doing well and decided to focus entirely on a field position game counting on the sputtering offense on the other side, which I, and, and part of it's Sharon Moore. I was a little concerned heading into this game. Like, yeah, he ran it like 32 times against Penn state. That was a cute idea, but was it really like, was that a wise coaching decision or are we going to, you know, and then the Maryland game got me a little more concerned, but part of me is like, well, he was hiding stuff because they got creative. You know, as you, as you pointed out, they went three and three on fourth down, but bringing up backup quarterback Alex Orgy as a run threat that got him at least, you know, got that 20 yard run that gave the offense something different. And as you mentioned, Donovan Edwards had that 34 yard pass that set up a critical field goal. Um, I think all of that, that willingness to like, OK, because the whole season we were kind of like Michigan seems to be playing conservative against every team they're playing, you know, and they're all weak and they know they're weak. So they're kind of hiding stuff. What will they show up against Penn State? Ends up they didn't really try anything crazy against Penn State. Instead, we saw a very unusual decision to just run it. And then when it came down to it, like, why are you going to hide stuff? It's it, This is the, I mean, it is the game. This is what the whole season, and while Michigan certainly has this whole season had their eyes beyond the game, you don't hide things. This is this is Ohio State. This is a top three team. You've got to, if you're going to do it, you got to lay it out on the line. And they did. and. It's just striking to me. Then uh, again, the, the focus of this team is what strikes me with Michigan because we've talked about they've kept the outside noise out and that outside noise has faded a bit and this win certainly has pushed it further in the background. But just on the field stuff, Will Johnson had a key interception early on. Impressive. Then he gets injured and the team managed to, to rally and keep Marvin Harrison and, and the rest and Kate Stover also had a good game, by the way. But I mean, they had to keep, they were able to keep them in, enough in check. And then when you had that that unfortunate uh, season-ending injury to um, to the offensive lineman, his name just slipped my head. Um, uh, Zach Zenitz. Uh, yes. Or Zinter. Z- Zach Zinter. Zinter, yeah. Zenitz is my new colleague. De- <laughs> and, and it's a brutal injury. And it could be really demoralizing. What happens the very next play, you know, Blake Corum runs for a touchdown. So again, that that kind of ability to stay focused, to, to stay on task, that was something where I, I was utterly impressed, which, again, I think uh, I give massive credit to to Michigan's coaching staff to keep this team focused with all the distractions out there. And, yeah, they were professionals and, and they won the game. It kind of goes to what we were just talk- what we were talking about. This is a game of professional against against professional people bring their A game. And that's, I think, probably the worst part for Ohio State fans. It's hard to you can't really. You can't say Michigan did any trickeration. There wasn't a big play. They just they just beat them. <laughs> it's bizarre. It's not what you expected to see. But with that, Ohio State, you are out of here. 
We're down to Georgia, Michigan, Florida State, Washington, Oregon, Alabama, and Texas. Uh, obviously, Louisville uh, proved us right for kicking them out last week, losing a, a seven-point game against a rival Oof. Kentucky. But uh, I think this is about right. I think that really and truly, these are the seven teams that can make the college football playoff. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing, again, how they weigh these close wins, especially with Washington and Florida State and Alabama, you know, again, close win. Granted, they might. I can totally imagine how it's going to be said. Well, it was against Bukorgan. Well, it was against a rival. You know, you always tell like they're defending something. And I'm not again, I'm not saying Alabama isn't terrifying. And I think I'm very curious to see. I think they have a reasonable shot to upset Georgia. But looking at the rest of the teams, I mean, Oregon. Oregon seems to be like the most complete team right now heading into championship weekend. The most confident team barely lose on the road to Washington. Uh, I could see them winning the same rematch in a neutral site game. Um, While Texas, for example, they lost their game in a neutral site game um, to a rival Oklahoma that isn't nearly as strong as Washington right now. So it's going to be fun to watch the dynamics as they balance them all. But at least at this state, coming out of this past week, I give Oregon an edge as the most impressive team so far. I'm not saying they're my number one, but I'm saying above, above the championship contenders, Texas, yeah, they had a dominating win, but Texas Tech ain't the same as Oregon State has been this season. And Texas, again, you know, we saw some weakness on their side that got hidden because they blew out Texas Tech. They still five trips, their first five trips to the red zone, they only scored once. Um, and a couple of long touchdowns in between kind of like, that's where it kind of fuzzes that out. That might not have been as apparent, but... I'm curious to see how this all works out. So next, let's have a conversation about some of these conference championship games that are coming up. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. The first conference championship game I think we should talk about is the Pac-12. It's really exciting. It's the one that's coming up first on Friday, Legion Stadium. Beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada. It's actually going to be back to back with the uh, Mountain West just by 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 sheer coincidence. But we'll set that aside. But we've got Washington. We've got Oregon, the rematch that a lot of people have been expecting, I think, ever since they played the first time. And we had a few games like that around the country, but this one really did end up the rematch we all expected. And it feels like the teams are very different than what we saw in that game, or at least some of the perceptions that came out of their their first game. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, Oregon is a nine and a half point favorite heading into this game against a team that beat them earlier this year. So I do feel like people have moved off of Washington a little too quickly. So, I mean, they were so good early in the year. I mean, they they were scary good earlier in the year with the way that they were able to put up points, with the level that Michael Penix Jr. was playing at, with the stats that they were putting up. I mean, they scored 59 against Cal, 41 against Michigan State. And it hasn't looked like that the past few weeks. That's fair to say. Three-point win over Washington State, two points against Oregon State, seven points against Utah, 10 against USC. But I do think that they're undervalued right now because, one, they found ways to win games. They've won, I believe they're up to 19 in a row, the second longest winning streak in all of college football, only trailing Georgia. And the teams that they've played over that time period, it's impressive. They beat Oregon twice over that period, both with Bo Nix and Dan Lanning. Uh, They've beaten Oregon State twice. They beat uh, Texas in in the Alamo Bowl last year with, by the way, Quinn Ewers in the lineup. 
Like, they have played good teams. They beat Arizona on the road, a win I think that only has aged better uh, with the way that Arizona's played the last little while. So I, I think that Washington is being talked about as, I, I don't know what you want to compare it to, right? Like I, like the, the sort of explosive offense type team, like more of like an Oklahoma under Lincoln Riley type team. And I think that they're just more complete than that. I, I think that this has been a team that's played really good situational defense when they've needed to. I think that they've run the ball when they've needed to. I think they've protected Michael Penix Jr. pretty well. Uh, and, and obviously, you don't have to have any questions about that passing game. That passing game is elite. Now, Oregon, I think, is certainly a more well-rounded team than Washington. Uh, you know, and, and the level that they're playing at right now on defense is obviously notable. They've been dominating their matchups. Uh, they're running the ball at a high level, and Bo Nix has taken that leap. Now, I, I think the question becomes, you know, when when these two teams played before, obviously Bo Nix had a good game, but Michael Penix Jr. was a trump card. Like, the passing game that Washington had in their last matchup is the reason they won the game. Flat out, straight up. Now you head into this game. This is obviously going to be a different kind of test for both Oregon and Washington to come in and do this. And by the way, do this on a neutral field. And also something that I think will be relevant, doing this in a dome in Las Vegas, uh, not having to do it in the elements of Oregon and Washington, which I think has also been a factor. I, I'm definitely picking Washington to cover. There's no doubt about that. They're like Nine and a half is crazy to me. I think I probably lean... Oregon to win straight up. I, I don't think that Washington has played its absolute best football as of late, but I, I think this ends up being something like a 35 to 31 game, uh, a really, really competitive game that once again comes down to the end. That I, I definitely agree. It's probably going to be close with an Oregon edge, but I, the thing that, the thing that's got me about this is the way Washington, and I think you absolutely nailed it when he said Washington just seems to find ways to win. And this pulling a rabbit out of your hat style of victory, we've seen championship runs by teams that have done that. Certainly, sometimes they end brutally in the playoff, but but we've certainly seen programs that can do that. I mean, the, the game winning or the game deciding play that everyone keeps talking about is that wild decision on a fourth down uh, in their own territory to roll the dice and have Penix just do a, a, a fake handoff and then another handoff to uh, to Odunze, who ran around the corner and, and got that key fourth down play. And part of it, again, you know, I remember Odunze, I was reading a quote from him, you know, you know, got to give kudos to the offensive staff to believing in us on that. But I was thinking to myself, what if it what if it didn't go well? What if that that play got stopped and suddenly tie ball game, you hand Wazoo the ball in your own territory. Would we be talking about it? Cause I went back to the Oregon game. I'm like, everyone was on Dan Lanning for being too aggressive. Like, Oh, you went for it on first down and you cost him the game. And, and then I remember even in that game, people were like, if Dan Lanning had been successful on one of those key fourth downs, no one would have said that everyone would have been like, wow, he's bold. He's aggressive. And now we're seeing that team, the two teams since that game and Oregon, again, in my opinion is the most complete team in terms of performance. And Washington just keeps doing these wild plays. So they're the ones that almost seem the, the one tempting fate game after game after game. And when you tempt fate, I'm always concerned about the game where you go against the team that doesn't need to tempt fate. And Oregon just keeps getting stronger. Keep It reminds me, and again, this is why I'm so excited for the 12-team playoff, because it reminds me of some of those Pete Carroll teams that would drop a game early in the season. By the end of the year, no one wanted to face them. 
So it, Oregon kind of reminds me of that, except that was a really tight game against an excellent team at their house. And now that that's an edge I'm going to give them because again, um, you know, the, but Washington, again, the defense did well enough. They managed to get three interceptions on Cameron Ward. Who's a legit quarterback. Very curious to see if he's still at Wazoo next year, but we'll set that aside. Uh, I think Kalen DeBoer is, is an excellent coach. And I think he's keeping that team focused and able to stay in those games. But Dan Lanning, I, they're just a tough team. They Oregon State is a tough opponent. You have to you have to play tough football to beat them. We're gonna say I'm gonna do the the obligatory. Bo Nix definitely affirmed it's him and Jaden Daniels as a Heisman finalist. I mean that you know, but 33 for 40, 367 yards, two touchdowns plus another touchdown on the ground. He has great receivers. Troy Franklin caught nine passes. Tez Johnson caught 11 passes. Their defense, though, in my opinion, this is where it's going to come down to. The Oregon defense has been underrated overall because everyone wants to focus on Bo Nix. And, you know, and those who know their running game also know that Oregon's Bucky is great running back as well. But Oregon State only was able to convert three of 11 third downs against the Ducks. You know, they were able, only able to get 53 on the ground. And when you look at them nationally, they improved all their defensive statistics against a tough team. Um, they were able to get they're now number seven in scoring defense number seven in rushing defense in the nation, total defense, number 15. So they're allowing like 15 points, maybe 300 yards of total offense, though Washington's potential edge is their weak spot is still the passing defense where they rank about 48. So maybe if Penix can have probably too late to be a Heisman moment, but if he can really deliver that passing game, that will be their edge. But overall, I just think this defense and this consistent play on both sides of the ball by Oregon is going to give them that edge. I don't see any reason why it's going to let down because they certainly, I thought they delivered it the first time they played. So I don't see a reason. And I mean, the, the cliche, let's go to the, the, the cliche thing. It's hard to be the team twice in the same season, right? Fine. We'll see how Liberty does against New Mexico state. But I think here, I, I just, I think Oregon is just a stronger team and without the home field advantage, that's going to assert itself completely. And I, I think Oregon's going to win, but I think it, it, not only straight up, but I could see them getting that nine points. But at the same time, I, I feel weird. I think it's a rivalry game. I think Washington is going to keep it closer than that. But I, if it's seven points, I wouldn't be surprised. I do want to push back on one thing. Uh, I think that, to me, the winner of the Heisman Trophy is going to be decided in this game. I think Ooh. that both of these teams are very quarterback-centric. Obviously, look, Bo Nix has been wildly more efficient. If you go look, though, at his advanced metrics, I mean, his average depth of target is seven yards per attempt. Michael Penix is an 11 and a half. They're not being asked to do the same things, and they're also not doing the same things. Michael Penix Jr., still number two in the nation in total passing yards, still number four in, in total touchdowns. Like, he is still doing the thing, and most people nationally have not watched him play since that Oregon game. They, they have, they're just looking at box scores. They're not actually watching the games. This is a game that they're going to watch. And I think that the winner of this game, this is a playoff play-on game. I, I think that we can say that definitely with, a, with an 11-1 Oregon versus a 12-0 Washington. The winner of this, the Pac-12, congratulations in your final year, heading back to the playoff for the first time since 2016. But I think that also whoever outduels, and, and again, we obviously with the caveat that they have to have that kind of game, right? Like they have to have a 300 yard, two touchdown game at least uh, to, to do it. But I think that this game will decide the Heisman because 
look, God bless Jaden uh, Daniels. He's had a, an incredible season. LSU hasn't won a, a, a meaningful game all year. Like, the only reason that they're in this is because their defense is so bad. Be- because they're just like, well, uh, what, what's he supposed to do? He only plays at LSU with the two best receivers in the country. Like, come on. I, to me, that's just not all that compelling. We can have a Heisman conversation maybe yeah. <laughs> on next week's show. We'll obviously uh, be able to do that. You know, maybe next week we'll kind of do a first look at the playoff games, and then the second one we can do a, a Heisman show. But I think Michael Penix is very much still in it. With that said, let's move on to the Big Ten. Oh my goodness! So, well, we know it's we've known it's Iowa for longer than we've known it's Michigan. But this is going to be this is I'm I'm. I think a lot of people are going to watch just for pure entertainment, and we can thank Iowa for that. If it had been anybody else in the Big Ten West, I think this would have been one of the least watched conference championship games. But everyone wants to see how will Iowa's defense mess with Michigan? Will J.J. McCarthy somehow you know, get stuck in a morass? Will it end up being a 10-7 to 7 or even better, like 10-8 to 8? somehow Michigan victory or I think that's going to be it. If, if Iowa's defense can play to the just really ridiculous level, it does, then maybe they could have the puncher's chance, but I am reaching here. I am reaching to give the Hawkeyes a chance. I think Michigan, especially with the confidence that they build off of that Ohio state victory where they just, they, I mean, they, it, it vindicated so much for the program, but it got, a lot of attention off of the off the field spygate stuff. It really was able to focus like, look, this is a consistent program. And yeah, they suffered a few injuries, but I think the bulk of that program is there. I don't think Iowa, because I mean, we can't forget Iowa's game against Penn State. You know, you don't get shut out that badly by Penn State and suddenly make me convinced that you're going to have all that better of a performance, especially with the injuries Iowa suffered against that Michigan offense. So I think Michigan's going to carry this one pretty handily, but I think a lot of people are going to be watching that first quarter or so, at least on the corner of their eye, just to see if Iowa keeps it interesting. Yeah, what else? Uh, I mean, I don't know. Will people watch this over Delaware, Montana, or over Southern Illinois at Idaho? I mean, those sound like way better games than this is going to be. The last time that Iowa played in the conference championship game was 2021, and that team lost to Michigan 42-3. to it was not close. I just, I don't see the vision. I mean, again, like you said, they played a Penn State team that is worse than this Michigan team and got beat 31 to zero. It was not close. Now, I do think that Iowa's defense is going to have a little something for, for Michigan. I don't think that this is an elite Michigan offense. I don't think it's one of the better units that they've had, but it's still pretty good. It's still pretty good. It's obviously better than that uh, the Penn State team that Iowa got blasted against earlier this year. Iowa is one of the most fascinating teams that's ever come through college football. They rank last place nationally in total offense, and they won 10 games. Now, I will say, part of that is the Big Ten West is... Is it the worst division Awful. we've ever seen? I, I, I think it's probably the single worst division we've ever seen. Uh, it, it is so bad. It is so embarrassing. Like the Big Ten West is looking up like, man, maybe someday we can be the ACC Coastal. Like maybe someday we can reach that level. Uh, 
it won't. But <laughs> it's a swan song for them, though. This it is, is it. This is the finale. Song. They're gone. This, this, <laughs> this is, is how we get to remember them by the Iowa team that managed to climb out of it. Imagine when Northwestern and Nebraska and Minnesota have to play Oregon instead of each other. That is going to be different. Uh, like you said, I, I mean, this Iowa team got blasted 31-0 against, uh, uh, against Penn State earlier this year. And after that game, suffered a bunch of injuries. Cade McNamara got hurt during that game. Eric All uh, went out against Wisconsin. They have been so hurt. They've lost so many tight ends. I, l- let me ask you this. How, I don't even, what is the closest score that you could imagine if everything goes perfectly Iowa's way? Well, it would have to, that's the thing. You have to start with the the score possible for Iowa. You you yes. can't start with Michigan. You have to start with what Iowa's even capable of. Because side note, you know, the whole running gag this whole season, which, you know, Brian Ferentz, the race for 325 or whatever, he would have to score 67 points against Michigan to somehow keep in that zone. People love calculating that, even though he's being let go at the end of the season. But realistically, I think what Iowa could score on a great day, 13 points. I mean, this, is that what it feels like, especially against that kind of a defense? So it would end up being a game where Iowa scores 10 to 13. Maybe Michigan has a really bad day, you know, throwing interceptions or something um, that gives them a little bit of an edge. And it would be like a one or two point game. Like the only I could not conceive of any other way. Michigan would just have to have the worst day of offense ever. And they have a solid defense. So it would end up being one of these defensive battles. It would end up being what <laughs> it would end up being the game that Ryan day hoped to have against Michigan um, somehow. Uh, and then we'd, we'd get some really just lumbering game that ends 13, 10 with everyone just shocked. Like it would have been the most frustrating game to watch because everyone would even neutral fans would be, well, when's Michigan going to score? Well, when's Michigan going to score? And it just wouldn't happen. And I've, I've witnessed a few games like that in my lifetime where you're sitting there the whole time. The game ends like 10 to six with teams that aren't Iowa. And you're just kind of like, how is no one scoring right now? How have we, how are we in the fourth quarter still? You know, it could be one of those. Um, but credibly, that's, uh, that's my biggest stretch. So I think I will say one thing to factor in. I think that, uh, again, to be clear, nowhere near enough to win the game. I think that Cooper DeGene being in the lineup would have changed potentially Iowa's scoring upside because I think that maybe you have a special teams touchdown, maybe you have a defensive touchdown. I don't know if they're as capable of that without him in the lineup. I mean, he's a he's a first-team All-American. He's a really good player, and he won't be playing in this game. I think that for me, the biggest number that I can imagine Iowa getting to is five, uh, like a one field goal and one safety. <laughs> I don't think I can imagine any more than that. Uh that's the thing. I I think that best case scenario, this is a 10 to 5 Iowa loss. Like that is that is like <laughs> the perfect, like everything goes exactly to plan kind of game. I, I think that that's what they're capable of. And, and the and the field goal would come on a an interception like within the red zone. And, like that's what it would have to be. I I think that this Iowa team is a joke. I think they're gonna get I, I don't even think that it's fair to say that they'll get totally exposed because I don't think that anybody thinks that they're anything other than this but it in this game I'm more going to be interested in like matchups like I'm more going to be interested in okay how does Michigan's offensive line handle 
the the defensive line of Iowa? How does JJ McCarthy handle the secondary? But like the points will be irrelevant. Like they'll be completely irrelevant. I, I'll, I'll tell you what, this, it's exactly like this, right? Um, you know, obviously uh, Baylor has been really bad this year, my alma mater. So I've just been like watching games, like all right, defense, just just let them score, hand the ball back over to the offense, so I can see like what Blake Shaping can do. That's that's what it feels like. Where it's like the numbers are just irrelevant. Like I I just more want to be like, huh. I think the Shapin's doing some nice things, uh, who, by the way, is transferring. But, uh, you know, it's it's more that I just want to see, like, oh, can they get certain playmakers involved? Because I don't, like, the game is over. It's it's not a real football game. Like, they're going to lose 44 to 7. Like, but I just, I just kind of want to, like, Iowa, see. Iowa's like, the best defensive scout team they're ever going to play is what it sounds like. <laughs> you know, like uh, let's, let's try some things uh, against this defense. Offensive there's, you know, but uh, well, let's, this let's is, try some This stuff. is basically... Uh, Basically, watching this game will be like, uh, like, like you remember back with the NFL Pro Bowl, they used to do like skills competitions. Like that's mm. more what I'm going to be watching this game <laughs> for than uh, any real thing. And, and by the way, I will say, uh, I felt that way last year too when they played Purdue. I actually did feel like I learned things from that game because uh, I actually ended up picking TCU to beat Michigan based off of some of the holes that I saw in that game. So I, I don't think that we won't learn anything from this game. I just think that it's going to be more of a game within the game. Uh, if I to, so so to pick a final score, I'm going to go something like twenty-seven to three. I frankly wouldn't be surprised if it's like thirty-five to three or thirty-five to two. No, I'll, I'll do thirty-five <laughs> to two. Let's make it. Let's make it a, a really bizarre to four. Maybe they'll get a scoregami of some kind and create a score that's just never been seen before in college football. Those are always fun. And if any team can get that kind of an odd scoring total, it'll be it'll be facing Iowa. Um, but let's wrap up this kind of first group by talking about the ACC title game. So it's, I mean, Louisville, <laughs> I get it's Kentucky, I get it's a rivalry, kind of let us down a little bit. But I, I'm not as, it definitely seems like it's going to be a closer game, if only because of Florida State with a backup quarterback, can they can, you know, kind of had that we've talked about them already this in the show. What do you think? How does this matchup break down for you? It's a tough one. I mean, without Jordan Travis in the lineup, I think it's a lot less certain. I still lean Florida State in this game, but certainly by a lot less than I would have with him out of the lineup. You look at this game right now. Uh, the line is only two and a half in favor of Florida State. I think that's probably about right. Louisville's been playing really good defense. I think that they're going to be a tough test for Tate Rodemaker. Now, Tate's also now gone through a week of practice. He's gone through a rivalry game. He's gone through some moments. I, I do think that's going to end up helping him out. I kind of want to see Brock Lynn play a little bit. He's, he's a freshman who they're really excited about, but that probably won't happen unless things are going real bad. Um, I do think that this is going to be a big moment for this Florida State defense, though. Because they have been the unheralded uh, strength of this group. I mean, 15 points allowed against Florida last week. Uh, they haven't allowed 25 points. Uh, the only They've only allowed 25 points once this year. And that was in kind of a letdown spot before the Clemson game against Boston College, who, who ended up not looking as bad as we thought that they might be. Yeah. Um, so I think that and they were doing the red bandana game when BC yeah. again, if this I've said before, <laughs> but then state football, if they, when they redo it, BC should get like a, a, a skills boost when they, uh, when they declare one game a season, the red bandana game, because that would be totally accurate. I've, I've witnessed it in person. I've seen a major upset in Boston, in, 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 in the stadium in Chestnut Hill and watched them storm the field afterwards, man. But anyway, sorry, <laughs> saying that aside. 
<laughs> no, so I think that um, this Florida State defense is really good. I think that they're going to be able to contain Louisville. I, I think that they're going to be able to contain, obviously, Jack Plummer and Jawar Johnson. I, I think that the offense for Florida State could be a little bit of a slog. Um, but I think they'll have enough. I, th- I think that for Florida State, what this game has to look like is definitely avoiding mistakes, which they did uh, against Florida. They did avoid mistakes. It's capitalizing on moments like they did against Florida. Um, and I think that they need to let Tate Rodemaker kind of air it out a little bit just to get him comfortable. I, I mean, this is a kid who's been on campus for four years at this point and really hasn't played very much football at all. I think that you need to test him in situations. You need to get him comfortable. Um, obviously lean on that running game like they did last week against Florida. I think that's going to be really important for them as well. But just don't make the game too hard. Uh, you know, and for Louisville, it's the opposite, right? You want to make the game hard. You have a really experienced quarterback. I think that uh, the uglier the game gets, I think the better that you feel. Uh, you know, when you look at, again, Louisville's, uh, Louisville's running game has been a huge strength for this team. Jawar Jordan over a thousand yards this season. They've also got a 600 yard rusher. So like if you can hold on to the ball, if you can muck up the game, if you can try to bait Tate Rodemaker into mistakes, that's what success looks like for you. And again, I mean, Jack Plummer has been a good enough player this year. He hasn't made mistakes. Uh, And I think that if you, again, muck up the game, Louisville is a much more poised team at quarterback, especially uh, with obviously Jack Plummer in the game than I think that Tate Rodemaker is going to be. I think Florida State wins. I think it's a low scoring game. I'm going to go Florida State 24 to 17. Yeah. First of all, I think the line is correct. This is almost a, this is almost a pick in my mind because the, the things that, that strike me are Florida State's defense has been good, but their weak spot has been the run game, which now we have Louisville coming up. I mean, I was just looking currently Florida State's, you know, they're not terrible, but they're 45th in rushing defense. And on the other side, they're going to be dealing with Jawar Jordan, Isaac Rendo. Those two are two good running backs that have been able to step up when the other's having an off day. With a competent, you know, we've, we've talked about Jack Plummer. He's competent. He's a veteran. He's been there. He's taken the billion snaps from various teams. He knows how to help manage that offense. And if their defense can take advantage of Rodemaker, who showed some weak spots, I'm sure they're looking at that film very carefully on how what Florida did. And just, you know, let's not do it. Just as long as they don't do like dual targeting fouls. I mean, things like that. Don't spit at the opposing players. You know, things like that. Simple, simple fixes um, and discipline. I think Louisville could pull this off. I I'm leaning that Louisville gets the upset, but I, I, I feel, first of all, as the, uh, as the line shows, it's not much of an upset, but I just think Louisville right now losing to Kentucky in the way they did, they want to come. They always seem to prove themselves because they had that pit game and then they came out strong and just reminded everyone that like, no, we are a solid team. I think Florida state has shown enough weakness, enough ways that Louisville can take advantage of them. Um, but I acknowledge that in the same way Washington seems to be finding ways to win, so does Florida State. So it very well could be that Florida State pulls it off. I'm very pleased with the line because I think this would be a game that would end something along those lines, but I would go, hmm, I could see a 33-30 game with Louisville winning. I could see that. Wow, you you think points are coming? I could see points coming. I could see both sides just getting desperate and it turns into a frantic fight. I, I could see that. Uh, although I acknowledge that's typically not Louisville's mo, yeah, I I think you're it, 
Well, well, but I want to make some variety here. Let's let's see that game go that way. I also don't think Florida State will keep it a low scoring game, so it's going to force Louisville to have to keep scoring. So, right. so just looking we'll at the matchup right now. Um, so, uh, Parker Fleming stats war on Twitter puts out these great graphics that obviously uh, really go deep into the numbers. His projected score, which again does not factor Jordan Travis being out, is thirty two to twenty three. But the two stats to keep an eye on: Florida State has the number one defensive success rate against the pass. They hold opponents to only 34% successful plays on passing attempts, which is astonishing. Like, that's really, really good. On the other side, uh, Florida State has the 88th rushing success rate offensively, which is a little bit of a surprise. I mean, Trey Benson has obviously done a really good job of grinding out tough yards, but... Again, this is this is down to down stuff, right? Like this is this is every single down. Can you rely on him? And the scary thing for me is if this game is fully in Tate Rodemaker's hands, I don't love that. I do not love that. I do think that Louisville will be able to hang on to the ball at a higher level. And, and Florida State is still 33rd in defensive rushing success rate, which is pretty good. It, it's not great, but it's pretty good. Uh you know, but Louisville is top 15 in both passing and rushing offensive success rates. So maybe they're just going to be able to, again, make the game easy for themselves, make it hard for Florida State, muck it up for them, play ball control. I, I do think, though, that that success for Louisville looks like a lower scoring game. I, I don't think that it's going to get into the 30s if Louisville wins this game. Well, next, we'll go ahead and take a look at the SEC and Big 12. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. So looking at the SEC title game, this is the one that we've all been waiting for, Georgia and Alabama. It's a really promising matchup. What are your thoughts? Yeah, this is a huge, huge game, obviously. Uh, Georgia, six-point favorites against Alabama, but both of these teams have looked like two of the four best teams in the country over the past couple of weeks. Obviously, you know, Alabama needed a little bit of a moment to survive that fourth and 31 against Auburn, but it's a rivalry game. It's the Iron Bowl. Things happen in those kinds of games. And also, Auburn literally hired their coach because he beats Alabama. That's the only reason that they hired him. When I look at this game, I think that Georgia is just a little bit more down-to-down consistent. That's what I like about where they're at right now. But, I mean, again, I, I think that Alabama might have the more dynamic component to their game when it comes to Jalen Milrow in the starting lineup. Over the past couple of weeks, he has been a trump card in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, passing-wise, it's been a little bit of a mixed bag, but rushing-wise, he's obviously been a monster. And he's made enough big plays to really set things up in a nice way. And on the other end, I think that the matchup that will really decide this game, again, look, going back to, to Parker's previews, it's going to be Alabama's pass defense versus Georgia's pass offense. Georgia has been okay running the ball this year. They're not very explosive, but they're pretty good down to down. On the other end, I, I mean, with Alabama, they're number seven nationally in defensive success rate allowed uh, against the pass. And they're going to be a tough test for Carson Beck, who, who, by the way, didn't have a great game last week against Georgia Tech. Now, again, rivalry game, weirdness, and also 
you know, Georgia Tech just has it out for ranked teams. That's that's just kind of what happens. But only 175 yards through an interception in that game was not his best. It ended up being a 31-23 game. So can Alabama, led by Kool-Aid McKinstry, led by some really good guys uh, in, in the secondary and at safety, can they make things hard? And the other part of this, too, you know, Georgia... Uh, the couple weeks ago, got Amarius Mims back on the offensive line, probably their best overall offensive lineman. But Dallas Turner is a better player coming off the edge than anybody that George has really had to face so far this year. Can they make his life difficult? And how does Carson Beck respond under pressure? Absolutely. And I think, you know, again, the, the Georgia with Georgia Tech game, they were missing three of their top five receivers. Brock Bowers, Lad McConkey, Rara Thomas were out. Those two turnovers were critical. I think the interception by Carson Beck in the Georgia Tech red zone was was something to keep an eye on. I'm sure Alabama is breaking that down completely. But also that Georgia defense is still good, though. Uh, they were able to keep Georgia Tech out of the red zone for quite a lot of the game and force them to settling in on on field goals. But the weakness that Georgia showed was they still can be gashed by running games, so they need to get stronger on the edge. With Jalen Milrow, with the the quality of Alabama's offense, I think they could exploit that. But in the end, maybe I'm leaning in on the fact that they're going for win number 30 in their streak. Um, I think Georgia will take this game. It'll be, a, again, I expect another close one here. I, I would be shocked at anything less than uh, than a couple of points differential. I think the the six points seem it was six points, right? It seems a little bit high. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to keep us moving here. What do you think finally with this Big Twelve title game? Texas, Texas has to prove itself. Texas feels awkward right now because I think they're starting to get this growing sensation that they are going to be left behind if it's a pick between only one spot and one loss teams. Um, even though they beat Alabama early in the season, it seems a lot of a lot of momentum has been moving towards, yeah, Texas, it's nice, but that's why you're leaving the Big 12. What are your thoughts? No, it's a great question. And I think that it's a complicated question for Texas because, like you said, they have arguably the best win in the country, a win on the road against literal Alabama. And Alabama at the time maybe didn't look as good as we thought. Well, they've come into form, right? They look like a top five team in the country right now. And you know, maybe it, people will make the case, well, but they weren't that then, but they are not. I, to me, that doesn't matter. You went on the road and you beat Alabama. I don't think that we can try to to parse too much who is what when. <laughs> like, it's it just gets too complicated that way. I think this is a terrible matchup for Oklahoma State. Like, like Oklahoma State is a good team, but this is exactly the kind of matchup that you don't want because it puts Oklahoma State's really good running game against a Texas defensive line that might have the best uh, defensive tackle interior in the entire country. Devondre Sweat and Byron Murphy the second. I, I don't know if Oklahoma State can win that. Now, against Oklahoma, they came out with a really, really smart, really strong game plan. They immediately swung the ball outside. They made Oklahoma sit back on its heels. Uh, it, it really had to make them restructure what they were doing at safety and linebacker. And then Ollie Gordon went crazy for Oklahoma State. I do think that this Texas secondary is not special. I don't think that it's as good as the front is. But the issue is, I don't think that Texas has to adjust to stop the, the pass. I think that they can come out there ready to stop the pass and stop the run with a really good defensive line. So I don't know. It, it's really difficult, I think, to try to... Uh, I, I think it's really difficult to try to figure all this out. Um, to me, 
Texas should run away with this game. I, I think that they should easily cover a 14 and a half point line. I think that it's probably going to end up being something like 35 to 17, something like that. But the other thing that I'll mention is that Oklahoma State has been a different team when it sort of overtly cares about games versus when they don't. Uh, we saw that early in the year. They kind of threw their non-conference to the dogs in a lot of ways. And then when it was time to get up for Oklahoma, they completely outplayed them. So I do think that Oklahoma State will have a little something ready. But I, I just think that Texas, this their entire Sarkeesian tenure has been leading up to this moment. Texas has not won a conference championship since 2009. They haven't played for a conference championship since 2018. They are clearly far and away the best team in the Big 12 this year. I don't even think it's close. I think that uh, on paper, they should blow away everybody on the field. They lost a close rivalry game. I don't think that changes how I feel about this team. And I think that uh, Texas should be able to, to come out, win a big game. And if they're able to do that, like you said, Maybe it gets a little squirrely with uh, with Florida State, Alabama, and Texas fighting for those late spots. But man, I, I think Texas should have a really good case. Absolutely. And I I mean, I'm curious to see if this game gets out of hand, we'll start to see Arch Manning more because that's certainly got the Texas faithful fired up. But I see some interesting motivations here. I could see Texas still trying to send a message not only to the playoff committee, because watching that beat down 50 to, 57 to 7, on Texas Tech, it felt like an old school BCS style points beating where you're trying to, to impress the computers back in those days. It felt like a throwback to there, but instead it was a, a message for Brett Yormark. And again, I could see them absolutely wanting to devastate. <laughs> like it was a movie. Here is your supposed champion looking down at the, the, the broken body of Oklahoma State. But Mike Gundy is such a wild card this season that I could see unexpectedly coming Loose, but you're absolutely right. That defensive run game uh, by Texas is just so awe-inspiring with the the quality of talent that as much as we've wanted to, as much as Oklahoma State has seen such a, a, a renaissance with that running game, I can't see that getting past them. So um, the other one weak spot I will point out, though, is Texas still had, and it was buried by their long touchdowns. They had some trouble with red zone offense. They only were able to score one touchdown on their first five trips. If Oklahoma State can keep it ornery like that, I could see that certainly. Um, I could see that certainly uh, turning into a close enough game. But I think I think I'm willing to take Texas on that kind of a on that kind of a win. You know, gonna go ahead and slowly wrap this up here. One of the things that I wanted to just throw out there, one of kind of funny stories. We talk about playoff decisions. I follow all kinds of wacky college football. Japan had uh, they have college football. They have over 100 teams there. They had one of the weirdest playoff decisions I've ever seen in the Kansai Collegiate American Football League. So bear with me here. One of their two big conferences. They had a three way tie for six and one. And the way they solved it was something I have never seen before. The Kansai Kaisers had just upset the five time national champions, the Kwansai Gaikun fighters, 16 to 13 immediately after the game in their uniforms with a representative of the third team on the field. They all played rock, paper, scissors. And then the winner <laughs> of rock, paper, scissors picked up a sealed envelope. All three players then picked sealed envelopes. And when they pulled the paper out, it said who went to the playoff. So we watched the team that just lost Quantai Gaikun fighters 
pull up a paper that said they were going to the playoff. And you see, there's a great photo of these three, these three team captains. One guy's like in regular clothes because he was just there like the Ritsumikin guy. But the other guy, the guy who just won a major upset, looks like he just got shot. Like he just, you could tell the pain of holding up. <laughs> so that's how they solved their particular playoff conundrum. But I thought I'd throw that out there. It's kind of a wacky one. I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up here. I just wanted to thank all of you who listen to us. I mean, and listen to our thoughts on all of this stuff. We we value you. We value your opinions. We value your your votes in our poll on X Twitter at CFB Survivor Show. Be sure when you get a chance to like, rate, subscribe whenever you get your podcast. I wanted to thank our producer, Joey Alberti. I'm Bob Ekayeri. He's Shehan Jayaraja. You can find his work at CBSSports.com. See y'all later. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.